You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center, broadcasting live from... Um, here in Santa Monica, California, the heart of Silicon Beach. We've got a great show for you, and you can get more information on the show on our blog, uh, which is at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Once in a great city, a Detroit story, and David Marinus. Thank you for joining us. You wrote this book, Once in a Great City, a Detroit Story, um, partly because you're a Detroit native, you know, having lived there early in your childhood, but You've indicated that one of the what, what genesis of the book was the watching a Super Bowl ad with Eminem. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I was not uh, planning to write a book about Detroit until this uh, Super Bowl of 2011. I was in New York City in a bar watching the the Packers play the Steelers, and at halftime, I wasn't paying too much attention and looked up and saw a commercial and a, with a freeway sign that said Detroit. That caught my attention, and then I saw all of these uh, iconic images of the city, the Joe Louis Fist, the uh, Diego Rivera murals of Detroit industry, this black sedan driving down Woodward Avenue, the main thoroughfare of Detroit, and then I noticed there was Eminem in the car. I'm not a, I'm too old to be a big Eminem guy, but <laughs> I love the sort of hypnotic backbeat of that music. And he gets out of the car and walks into the glorious Fox Theater, and there's a black gospel choir rising in song. And Eminem turns to the camera and says, this is the Motor City. This is what we do. Um, and it it had a shocking, profound effect on me. I, I choked up watching it. Um, and that got me thinking about why. I, you're right. I was born in Detroit. I spent my first seven years there. My primordial memories are of Detroit. And I started thinking about what it meant to me and also what it meant to America. And that's really what drove me to the book, to try to write a book that that uh, both honored what Detroit gave America and sort of foreshadowed its uh, collapse. 
I can only imagine what we'd be talking about right now if you had watched the GoDaddy ad. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but also, I, I have a feeling Simon and Schuster is going to have a really good Super Bowl party this year, given um, what the, what you're watching. One commercial produced that so you, you dove into the issue and. What year did you leave Detroit? Because you, you focus on just a certain core period. Was that yeah, when, no, the time when we you were still in Detroit? No. We lived in Detroit in, uh, until 1956. Um, but when I started thinking about writing the book and what I wanted to deal with, I came up with four central themes, and those were uh, automobiles, which is obvious about Detroit's contribution, music and Motown, uh, sort of the soundtrack of my generation, labor and the United Auto Workers and how vital that union was to the entire American labor movement, and civil rights. And so those four threads, I couldn't write about that in the 50s because Motown didn't exist yet. So I was looking for, I sort of used the metaphor of, of, for my books and my journalism, of setting an oil rig somewhere and digging down as deeply as I can. And to deal with those uh, major themes, I realized that 1963 automobiles sold more than ever before. Uh, that year, Motown was just starting the boom. It had just finished its first uh, national tour. The Rooster and the labor movement were, were vital, not only in terms of bringing working class into the middle class, but also connected to the, sec- the fourth theme, which is civil rights. And it was the UAW that served sort of as the bank for the Southern Civil Rights Movement during that crucial summer of 1963. And Martin Luther King came to Detroit that summer and delivered a early version of his I Have a Dream speech there before he did it in Washington. So all of those those four threads uh, took me to that specific period to write about. And, you know, again, in 1963, that's when Detroit, and accompanied with a letter by President Kennedy, um, submitted its bid for the 1968 Olympics. And Absolutely. Actually, the video, the, they did a video presentation, and it's actually available on YouTube. I've watched it. And Detroit really does seem, at that time, that's the city of the future. Well, it portrayed itself that way. And in many ways, Detroit was a, an international city. You know, they'd, they'd been the United States candidate for the Olympic to host the Olympics four times before that. And they really thought that this was their shot. The 1968 Olympic choice would be made in 1963, right in the center of my book. And, and Detroit did present itself as, as a world-class city. Uh, President Kennedy is in that presentation, that film that you saw. Uh, Jerome Cavanaugh, the mayor, was, was a progressive who was kind of considered the, the nation's mayor during that era. Um, and there was a lot going uh, in so many ways. It had bipartisan support of the governor, George Romney, and Mayor Kavanaugh, and uh, the auto industry was, was, was booming. And so in all of those ways, Detroit was what I call a, a, a luminescent star, but it didn't see that there was also a dying star. Right. It's almost like a, a, kind of the same impact of like the titanic it has no idea that what is about to come and is is that do people have a sense at all that this what that ultimately what detroit would become over the next 30 years is ahead well there were some signs that there were sociologists at wayne state university who 
issued a report that year um, predicting that Detroit would lose a half million people by the end of the 60s decade, and that that trend would continue for the foreseeable future, basically stripping Detroit of its tax base. There were already uh, signs of white flight starting in the in the 50s and, and of racial tensions in various Detroit neighborhoods and real fights over housing and jobs. So there were definitely signs uh, of, of these difficulties already there during that, that very bright, uh, you know, superficially bright period. But people see what they want to see. And, and there was enough uh, optimism in the city then that, that the troubles, that, the structural problems that were already there were, were not ignored, but, but thought could be overcome. And, and if you look at you know, the, the verticals that you focus on, you know, all of them apparently appear to be at their peak, and yet it's hard to imagine that occurring today. And so it, it seems like such a distant error, and when it really isn't that long ago. So let's let's kind of talk about some of those verticals. The first is the auto industry, and you mentioned the launch of the Mustang. You know, probably one of the um, D- Detroit cars of that era. And and so you know that seems to symbolize Detroit at its peak, and, and and you can tell us a little about that. Well, the Mustang was was brilliant in a couple of ways. One is that it sort of foresaw the coming of the post-war baby boom generation. It was a car built for for that uh, growing population that was just reaching um, the dri- driving age. It also foresaw the. Uh, the expansion of the car market into two two car families, which was coming, and the Mustang was sort of created as a second car for a lot of families. Um, but it also came at a time when the industry as a whole um, was still building large cars. Um, the more chrome, the better. The more aluminum, the better. Uh, there had been a brief uh, uh, sort of dip into the compact car market in the late 50s, um, and it was turn- they were turning away from that by 1963. Um, and so the Mustang was kind of, it was a very, uh, you know, it became the sexy car of that area, sort of a muscle car, um, and, and served a lot of different purposes, but it, but it didn't uh, in any way foreshadow uh, Detroit's uh, awareness of what was to come in terms of competition from Japan in particular, um, there were a few people who, who saw the need for smaller and less expensive cars. One of them was George Romney, who was then actually had gone from American Motors to become governor of Michigan, and his American Motors Corporation was building some smaller and less expensive cars. And another uh, person with some foresight was Walter Ruther, the head of the United Auto Workers, um, who was constantly pushing the big three automakers to build smaller and less expensive cars. Walter Ruther, you, you often say, is just an unheralded or overlooked person in, in the history of that era when he actually was a pivotal figure. You know, for those who aren't, aren't familiar with who he is, could you give us a, a short description? Yes, Walter Ruther was the president of the United Auto Workers from the 1940s uh, through his death in 1970 in a, in a airplane accident crash. He was a progressive who who had to fight both ends. He, he took on the communist wing of, 
of the United Auto Workers and the uh, reactionary uh, forces of of some of the automakers. Uh, you know, he was he was beaten by goons at Ford Motor Company at one point, and there were assassination attempts on his life. Um, he was really instrumental in so many ways. One in and helping bring the uh, working class into the middle class. I think that the, the United Auto Workers were the heart of the, of the American labor movement, and Luther was the heart of the United Auto Workers, along with his brothers, Roy and Victor. And he also was a very progressive uh, thinker. He, he, you know, when you study his speeches and papers, you see him um, really sort of anticipating the the effects of technology on, on his industry and on all of American life and trying to figure out ways to, to humanize these, the changes that were coming. He saw the technology changes coming. He also was very progressive on matters of race and was constantly pushing for stronger civil rights laws. He was active in the movement. Uh, he spoke at the March on Washington and at the Walk to Freedom in Detroit. Uh, his union helped bail Martin Luther King's supporters out of out of jail in Birmingham, Alabama, that spring of 1963. And he also he was a believer in bigness, which sounds so antithetical to politics today. He he thought that bigness was just a a, a fact of life, corporate bigness and government bigness. And the the issue was not whether things would be big, but whether they would be humane. And he he tried to deal with it in that respect. And there was a saying at that time, and I don't know who first said it, but, you know, what's good for General Motors, I believe, is good for America. Who who did say that, by the way? (laughs) It was the president of General Motors a little bit in an earlier era. But, you know, that perception seems quite antiquated now, but, you know, even into the 70s, sometimes you would hear that. You know, it was certainly true that what was good for General Motors was was good for parts of Detroit, um, <laughs> although General Motors was in some ways emotionally abandoning Detroit and, and moving not just its plants but its finances elsewhere. You know, that's part of the problem of Detroit, that it was so reliant on that one industry. You know, when you talk about Detroit's decline, there are many, many factors involved, but obviously the key one was the sort of being a one-company town and too reliant on the auto industry. Is that due to the fact that the auto industry was just so big that it was it would be hard to have anything really else given the modern resources that that it sucked up, or it was just people didn't see the need to do anything else? Well, there were other industries there in earlier eras. There was a big pharmaceutical industry in Detroit, and some other things going on there. But the auto industry was just such a massive employer. And, and so, it, you know, it, like so many things in life, its strengths were its weaknesses. It, it, right. it, it had good salaries. It gave uh, disposable income to the working class. It allowed Detroit to grow in a way geographically expansive, uh, mostly with single-family homes. And so all of these working-class families had their own houses, um, and reliant on an industry that was in the long, slow process of leaving Detroit <laughs> and leaving them behind and leaving you know them struggling to figure out how to pay for their homes and deal with their livelihoods. 
if you're a startup at that time, probably made Detroit unattractive because how are you going to attract top talent when even unskilled workers can make a lot of money in the auto industry? Oh, absolutely. And that's why what's happening in Detroit today is so interesting that it is, you know, it's in the early process of, of, a, of a pretty healthy uh, diversification process built around various startups and, and young people moving back into parts of Detroit, you know, techies and foodies and artists and musicians and others, really giving it a new vibrance. And I get the impression that you weren't the only one moved by, whether it was the M&M commercial or I don't know if it was the same year, but the Clint Eastwood commercial about Detroit. It came the next year, yeah. The next year. Because I've been reading that now there are tours of the various, for lack of a better word, artifacts of Detroit that were displayed, you know, the empty buildings, and that there actually are now architectural tours of Detroit's abandoned space. Yeah, that's that's good and bad. When I started the research for this book four years ago, I stayed at a bed and breakfast in Midtown, uh, not far from the Detroit Institute of Arts. And many of the other uh, guests at that B&B were, were Europeans who came to tour the ruins of Detroit, exactly as you're talking about, you know, the the old Michigan train depot and other right. ruins. And, and it was almost as though they were uh, coming to ancient Rome. Oh, this um, is the Acropolis. So, yeah. <laughs> the, the Acropolis uh, of the 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, and, and there is a certain beauty to that decay, um, but you can only persist with that for so long. Exactly. And, and so Detroit, I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a trained journalist and historian and I'm, I'm uh, skeptical but optimistic. So, so I, but I see signs of Detroit moving from being that symbol of a city of ruin to a city of hope. Now, wh- one of the, the biggest legacies that I think still has a lot of vibrancy today in America is is Motown. And, yes, and, but and Motown left. <laughs> they, they were, they were, yeah, they were, they were oh, I'm calling from Santa Monica, so yeah, they're, 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 <laughs> they're, they're where I am now. What they created there, as as opposed to here, it, it right. still stands the test of time, and they, they, their artists are still playing. I, you know, I, I had the good fortune of actually seeing Stevie Wonder. I was at the front row um, uh-huh. to see him, and you know, that's those artists: Stevie Wonder, Diana Ross, and you, know, you can go on the whole list. It's their like their their music has not aged at all. It's really quite extraordinary. It all came out of that one city, you know. And I, I start the book with the first Motortown review, and imagine that bus. Stevie Wonder was he was little Stevie then. He was thirteen. Marvin Gaye was on the bus. Uh, Martha and the Vandellas, the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, Mary Wells, the Supremes were there as the opening act. Nobody was sure if they would even make it or not yet. And the Temptations were singing backup for Mary Wells, but. The question I wanted to deal with was, why did it happen in Detroit? What was the creative burst that allowed that to occur there? Part of it was the uh, pure entrepreneurial genius of Barry Gordy Jr. Mm-hmm. and his four sisters, who don't get as much credit as they deserve in the creation of Motown and keeping him together. Um, part of it was just uh, circumstance, the luck of so many potentially great singers and artists being in the same place at the same time. 
part of it was the great the effects of the great migration of right. African Americans from uh, Alabama and Georgia and Louisiana and Mississippi, you know, coming up uh, with the, bringing with them their traditions of of blues and jazz and, and uh, church music, and there were a couple other factors. One was uh, actually a, a pianos. There was a great piano company in Detroit, Grinnell Brothers, that made affordable pianos and distributed them throughout the city. And the fact that it was a vast uh, geographic area with single-family homes made it easier to get pianos into those working-class houses where people had disposable income. And a final factor that I discovered was public school music teachers. Virtually every musician, Motown musician I interviewed talked about, remembered their, their music teachers from not only elementary school all the way through high school and and the effect that they had on them. So all of that, you know, Detroit was just a musical town and it, it happened in the right time and place. The words you said, their, their school music teacher, um, which I, I remember mine as well, but, you know, do they even have that today? Uh, no, you know, but that's that's a nationwide problem. I mean, Detroit schools are certainly uh, very, very uh, troubled, um, and the, the uh, finances of them are even more so. And so, uh, you know, arts are always the first thing to go, and that's sadly true throughout the country, in my opinion. So in many ways, Detroit is an exaggeration of the ills and, and uh, misguided efforts of other places. But, you know, we all know that so many young people just need inspiration from something, and a lot of it comes from the arts. And that's the first thing that schools uh, drop. You're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report on Webmaster Radio. Follow us on Twitter at Cyberlaw Radio. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Is buying something that is made in the USA important to you? How do you know that it really is made in the USA? Certified Inc. is the only supply chain audit company on the planet which qualifies country of origin labeling. If it's important to you as a consumer to know where the products you buy and use in your own home come from, then it's also important for your customers. Visit us at madeinusa.net and find out more. Go to madeinusa.net because it's that important. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at mock speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. 
It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. Of the, the verticals we've talked about, although the civil rights movement clearly that is a huge lasting legacy, and yeah. you know, thank, thankfully, but Motown, the arts, seems to be what continues to define Detroit from that era. More less so the the, the cars, although <laughs> I, I was an intern for Senator Pell on in Capitol Hill in the eighties, and uh-huh. one of the plum assignments which I, I never got was drive with him from his office from home to Georgetown to Capitol Hill in his 1968 Mustang convertible. Oh, no kidding. That's cool. So, you know, that legacy, there were some legacies, I think, from the the cars that seem to continue even after um, the 70s and the oil shots. But you're right. It's Motown that lasts. I mean, and it's kind of funny to think about it was you know uh, i'm of the 60s generation so that would have been comparable to songs from 1910 still have being you know played on the radio and in the soundtrack of our lives which motown still is uh you know just uh i went to the howard theater and saw martha reeves and the vandellas you know she's 71 years old and still dancing in the streets and the place was going nuts for her there's something about, I think it was the artistry, and he, just last week, or this week, Smokey Robertson gave an interview, and he talked about, you know, how he wrote songs for, mm-hmm. you know, like the attempt, I think it was My Girl? Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, for the Temptations, and he said, you know, we just wrote for who we thought could sing it best. And, yeah, there know, was a, a camaraderie. There was. I mean, you know, over the period of that decade, the 60s, Success got to many of the people and jealousy and money and all, all of the things that happen when there's, when, when a place really hits, um, and split it apart in various ways. And there was animosity toward Barry Gordy for not paying his artists adequately and giving them credit. But, but in the early years where I'm writing about in particular, and Smokey was always this way. He was, he was the class act of that whole group. In the early years, there was an incredible camaraderie and, and, they all described it as, you know, almost like a college experience. They wanted, you know, those little houses on, on West Grand Boulevard, Hitsville, USA. They loved being there, and they were, they, you know, it was open 22 hours a day, and there was constant creativity going on, some creative tension in terms of every week there'd be a, you know, they'd all gather and vote on which of the prospective songs they would produce, um, and it was a very uh, democratic process. Barry Gordy, who was also a songwriter, often got uh, lost in those votes. Uh, his own sisters would vote against him. But there was all of this creative energy going on there, which is really quite remarkable. That, that's what seems to come out in all the documentaries when you, about the Motown sound, you know, um, standing in the shadows of Motown, yes. and, um, 20 feet from stardom. You, you see that being a key element. So... Your background as a, you know, you're with the Washington Post, but you're, you're 
as an author, you covered such a wide range from you know the Rome Olympics, Roberto Clemente, Bill Clinton. What what is what are you going to do next? <laughs> I probably am going to do a more personal book about my father and some of his experiences, but I haven't I haven't uh, narrowed it. I haven't completely decided on that. I'll, I'm also going to go back and and do another uh, second book on Barack Obama and maybe even one on Clinton, but. I have so many different interests. Uh, whatever I write about, the first uh, requirement is that it's something that obsesses me. Uh, you know, I, I, I try to only write books that I'm really willing to devote three, three or four years of my life completely to and enjoy the process from beginning to end. Now, we, we talked to Doris Kearns Goodwin a few years ago, and, and she said that actually her process was she has a room, and it just becomes that, because hers are all about presidents, so it just becomes right. that president. You know, it, it's like a, it's a, her own little mini presidential library. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and do you have a similar process? Well, if you, went, if you saw my uh, office, actually I have two. I have one in Washington and one in Madison, Wisconsin, where I also write. Uh, they're pretty eclectic. I mean, they have little bits from all of my books, but but yeah. I mean, I by when I'm deep into my research, not only is my office completely transformed into what that's about, but so is my head. My wife often uh, describes me driving down the street with her, and she's worried about whether I'm paying attention to. The, the traffic to say, what chapter are you on? You know, (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's pretty, it's pretty obsessive in that regard. Well, it it, it takes that, I think to to get that done. So the, um, in, in talking to people today about your book, um, and reminding them of Detroit's kind of bygone era, um, for those, you know, of the Eminem generation, what response have you gotten? It's been great. It really has. I, you know, there's a, um, and it isn't just in Detroit, although there are a lot of ex-Detroiters everywhere, it seems, I go, you know, I've, you know, whether it's in Los Angeles or where I went or Nashville, Tennessee or, or New York City or, or Milwaukee, Chicago, I've found ex-Detroiters everywhere. But, but even in the younger generation, there's a true, there's something, I, you know, I don't want to go overboard on it, but there, there's something magnetic about Detroit. Because uh, both of its, you know, the troubles it, it went through, what it gave America, and sort of a just a grittiness, uh, something that, that that appeals to people about that grittiness. And um, what about the Detroiters? Is it Detroiters or Detroitians? <laughs> yeah, it's Detroiters. Uh, they've totally embraced the book. You know, I've, I've I I didn't I started it not. Not you know what would be what Detroit would be like when the book came out, but it, it seems to have come out at exactly the right moment when Detroit is it has got this sort of buzz going, and the and the book sort of fell into that. So this seems uh, like a, a project that could lend itself well, translate well to a documentary. Are you thinking about that at all? You know, uh, there there's a very serious uh, documentarian who wants to do it, and. There are also uh, three or four Hollywood uh, producers who are looking at possible limited series. You know, I, my joke is that all of my books are in various stages of not being made into movies. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this one sort of, you know, there's a lot of interest in it right now. Wasn't that like Abby Hoffman's autobiography, soon to be a motion picture? But actually, 
there are tons of Detroiters out here in Los Angeles. You know, and because yeah. you know when Detroit collapsed in the seventies, LA was booming. Yep. You know, one one last question: any any chance you collaborate with Eminem? <laughs> you know, I would love to meet the guy. Some people are working on it. <laughs> I don't think I could go head to head with him on rap, though. He's pretty good. So you know, coming soon, a future CD from. The- <laughs> That's right. Well, I want to thank you for your time and um, best of luck at the Miami Book Fair with this great book. And I noticed that you were you already appeared at one of my favorite bookstores, uh, Politics and Prose. Oh yeah, that's my home court. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I used to live a couple blocks from there. Oh and yeah, it's fabulous. It's uh, definitely yeah. In a day when bookstores or bookstores are, are fading away, here's one that's as vibrant as ever, and uh, that, it's a, sure. it's a great store. So, but I want to thank you for joining us, and best of luck to you. The book is "Once in a Great City: A Detroit Story." And David Marinus, thanks again. Thank you. It was great. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social, the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your Facebook contests and sweepstakes. Create a fun, easy-to-win contest by writing a simple Facebook post. Watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction. Track your traffic and generate email lists with ease. So Social is mobile-friendly and complies with Facebook terms of service. Let So Social give your Facebook page some flash today. Zoom over to zosocial.com. Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics, so you know their SEO experts. But did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report talking to Steve Reniger from um, the city of Los Angeles to tell us about what's going on in Los Angeles and the, you know, the exciting things there, particularly under Mayor Garcetti, who you know, really is, seems to be the, you know, the um, tech um, mayor of the, you know, the 21st century. And, um, and then we're going to talk, um, David Sandel is going to come back um, and talk to us about um, what's going on nationwide with Gigabit Cities. And he, you know, he's the um, organizer of the of a number of Gigabit City events, including the Gigabit City Summit. So um, get your ultra broadband speed fix right here, um, and we're going to start off 
um, with Steve Renniker. As our first guest today, we have Steve Renniker, and he's the general manager for the Los Angeles Information Technology Agency, and he has the very big task of putting together an RFP to make Los Angeles um, the largest gigabit city in the country, if not the world. And Steve, are you with us? Yes, I am. Steve, thank you for joining us. And uh, you have quite an impressive background. You've worked in um, fast cities in Riverside, and um, you, you really seem to be at the forefront of really the, the smart city, fast city movement. Um, well, we're, we're trying. You know, I took Riverside, city of Riverside to the most intelligent community in the world in 2012. A lot of that had a broadband aspect of it, so I'm looking at uh, bringing those same ideas and principles to Los Angeles. Now, what is the criteria to be the most intelligent city of the world? Well, there's really five components. You know, one is broadband, having ubiquitous broadband uh, in your community. Uh, the second is digital inclusion, making sure that you bridge the visual divide and allow access from an affordable means to those in your community that are connected. Uh, then provide some level of innovation both internally in city government as well as externally by uh, creating incubators and connecting your technology communities. Uh, the fourth is uh, knowledge workforce, connecting with your lower and higher education institutions and making sure that the students go on to college and those that do graduate hopefully have the jobs and resources to keep them locally rather than exporting them out to other communities throughout the United States of the world. And the last is uh, really telling our story, so marketing and advocacy, uh, really educating everybody, all the Angelinos in Los Angeles about uh, what are those golden gems that exist here and, and getting them excited about living in, in this community. Now, uh, you know, L.A. had a, a mayoral election this, this March, and um, the winner... Um, was Eric Garcetti, who had strong support from the tech community. Um, and is, do, you, do you feel that this is kind of a, a great opportunity for tech um, in, in, any, in a city of, of this size, given you know, Eric seems to be predisposed to tech initiatives? Absolutely. I mean, innovation is, is top on his agenda. Um, he's really working to drive a lot of the technology initiatives forward and one of his deputy mayors is solely responsible for technology and innovation, uh, Rick Cole, who I report to. Um, so he's really taking more of a CEO stance from a, uh, a tech technology private sector company application and applying it uh, as an overlay to the city of Los Angeles. So it's, it's a great time to be in L.A., and I look forward to uh, working with him to execute on that strategy. So before we get into the, um, the gigabit um Effort. I mean, he, one of the things he implemented is a is a, a city app to um, for services. Was it Los Angeles three one one? Yes, MyLA three one one. And uh, what does that do? So that that was really our first mobile app that uh, takes all of the ideas and principles around LA and combine them into a single request. So as a citizen, rather than having to call three one one. Uh, now you have the ability either over the web with our new LACity.org website or on this MyLA311 mobile app, uh, you can report any service type out there, take a picture of it, captures your GPS location, forwards it into our 311 call center, and we're also in the background working on 
direct integration out to the department so in real time they'll see these requests coming in and more importantly in the future by October of this year uh, excuse me October of next year we will be able to actually tell you what the status of that request is and when it's closed and report back to you so uh, it's it's really the initial um, aspects of going forward and really making city a virtual 24 by 7 city hall what is the um, I don't know if you have any data what what's the the actual response rate so far on that in terms of how many people are using it we have to date about 18,000 downloads of the application That's out right. there we have about five percent of all the submissions that come into 311 now are done over a mobile device so um, still has a long way to go but can you know considering we just launched it uh, really in April um, it's really having tremendous growth. We're seeing uh, a doubling month-over-month -month growth, not just downloads, but 311 submissions. So we're really looking at that's going to be the, the next wave or the big generation uh, of how 311 requests are going to be submitted by the public. And, I, and also, I think you know, the mayor is doing a lot of public awareness. I've seen a lot of photos of him holding up his mobile phone. So um, I'm that's sure that... biggest kid on it. So... Um, the move to become a gigabit city, and we had, um, we've covered this issue on our show in the past and talking about, you know, this transformation in Chattanooga from, you know, this kind of bedroom community outside Atlanta, um, to now being the fastest internet city in the U.S. And, um, and so look, at some point Los Angeles decided it wanted to join that club. Um, what's the genesis of that? So we, when you take a look at a lot of the success factors, like Chattanooga, like Kansas City with Google, um, and there's probably another 80 or so cities and communities out there that have either built their own fiber or have leveraged private-public partnerships uh, to provide gigabit to the communities, and we see that it does two fundamental things. You know, it provides a huge economic development boost to the city because it becomes an attraction vehicle for companies wanting to come and relocate in. But for high-tech employees that whose jobs depend on a high-speed broadband connection to be effective in their job are attracted to those communities that have faster and more cost-effective broadband solutions in those communities. So that's a huge driver for L.A. Uh, but then secondarily um, is really the, the, the benefit to reach those that aren't connected. You know, here in L.A., we have our LAUSD rolling out 650,000 iPad tablets. Mm -hmm. Very innovative structure. Definitely the way to go for our, our students out there. But if 30%, which is about the number they have told me, uh, that don't have broadband at home, how are they going to have an equal experience uh, in getting their homework done and doing their research uh, if they don't have broadband at home? So being able to provide a free or cost-effective solution to our low income out there is going to be a huge factor in taking the city forward. So we're really looking at it. It's, it's the ecosystem that's going to drive us um, for the next 20 to 30 years and being an intelligent community, a smart city, uh, and one that, that has innovation at the top of its priority list. And, and so um, right now the process has been the city council has approved um, you're moving forward to draft what is known as a, a request for proposal or RFP to find uh, a vendor who would be interested in, in partnering with the city in, in, in launching this initiative. Correct. 
So we we have a draft that's in place right now. Our next step on this is obviously getting outside legal counsel to review it and, and guide us through the process uh, through RP and award. But in January, we're really going to be working with uh, the mayor's office and Councilman Blumenfield, uh, who's taken the lead on this effort through our Innovation Technology Committee, and trying to get some citizen input on it. You know, we're, we're also going to get feedback from the private sector and the carriers and the communities, which we already have gotten some from that aspect. But I think the real impact is going to be what does the community want? And as long as it's not going to cost them anything, so really the, the direction for the city is is the spends that we're already spending today, if we can be a little more intelligent about that and maybe even offer it as an incentive that we might be able to direct that revenue uh, to them as opposed to an expenditures to other third parties out there, would that be enough to entice somebody uh, to build out something of this magnitude in Los Angeles? And so the structure of the deal actually is that if the vendor, let's say I, I decided to deep, dig deep into my pocket and, and, um, and sign up with LA to provide the service, I'm paying for the build out, I'm providing free service at a lower tier um, broadband speed to everyone who wants it at that speed, but then I'm able to offer um, tiered service up to a gigabyte um, per second um, at, to everyone else, and you know I can charge for that. Is that basically the structure? That's basically it. So we're we're definitely needing to work with a provider to ensure that they get at least a forty percent penetration because that's what they're going to need uh, to make it profitable for them. Um, but but also we're looking at them being a wholesaler on this network. Um, if if in fact we're successful in doing so, which should provide benefit to them as well. I mean, if you're introducing and allowing a fiber connection to the house, why shouldn't they be given the opportunity? Uh, to choose whatever provider they want um, that services either broadband or TV services or even telephone uh, to their home. So uh, by them being a wholesaler on it allows them to continue to make margin on whether they're providing the service or whether it's provided by somebody else. Uh, and then it also opens it up to free in a competitive marketplace in L.A. because the last thing we want to do is we want to respect um, all the investments that have been made by all the companies to date but give them an opportunity to, uh, to continue to offer services and be competitive in Los Angeles. Now, one of the criteria is that um, they, have, they have to be open for um, the, the lines have to be open for both broadband and um, cable communications, right? Yeah, our focus is really on broadband and the RFP, but knowing that once you have the vehicle that can offer other services, uh, that's when we'll really need to get in our legal counsel, really take a look at, um, you know, the legalities of what can and can't be offered depending on who wins the RFP and how that's structured and delivered uh, remains to be seen. So at the end of the day, everything's negotiable in this RFP, but we want to make it clear uh, that our vision is, is that we're looking at it being open uh, and uh, not restricting competition. And so... If if you had it that you know they had to provide cable, there's some concern that, for example, Google, um, you know, Google's high speed offering uh, would not be um, they they could not win this RFP because then they don't provide cable services. Well, the bottom line is Google provides TV services in the neighborhoods they serve, so we're we're not talking about cable. We're talking about 
fiber services the home and fiber can leverage video, voice, and data, right? Mm -hmm. And so in the case of where Google serves today, yeah, they're pro providing telephone uh, services. They're providing uh, a limited TV uh, broadcast service as well as high-speed gigabit speeds. But unfortunately, they're only providing them to residential only and not to the businesses. So our particular offering here is requiring both. So if they did want to bid on LAs, they would have to change their business model. And what type, have you gotten much feedback from, you know, you know obviously the, the RFP is not out there yet, but is, are there any expressions of interest already? Yeah, there are. I mean, we've, we've met with AT&T, Verizon, Comcast, Charter, T-Mobile, uh, Sprint Nextel, um, and, and there, is, there is a lot of interest out there. I would say at least three entities have come to the table, say we're interested, we're definitely going to respond, uh, which gives us... Uh, some excitement to the fact that that maybe we have an RP that can be structured the method that will uh, deliver you know the majority of what we're asking for. We certainly don't have expectations that everything that we're asking for in the RFP will be able to be satisfied, but we're hoping that we have enough on the table to negotiate to deliver something that's going to be a huge benefit to the city. And you know, if you're successful, you know, um, basically. You the information superhighway will be the uh, the first highway in LA where you can go fast. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's right. But um, you really look at it; it's it's going to be the foundation uh, that's going to build the next generation LA, regardless of any business, regardless of any household uh, that that is going to be in in Los Angeles. Um, it's going to be part of a high tech community, and that's uh, what we're striving for. This is Bennett Kelly broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center in Santa Monica. Um, happy holidays to all of you. And join us for our year-end um, edition next week. Um, same bat channel here on um, Webmaster Radio. And be sure to download our mobile app and take us wherever you go on this, these holidays. So um, that's all right now. Quarters adjourned. We will see you next week on Cyberlaw and Business Report. This is Bennett Kelly. Have a great week. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business -business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working... The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.